Hi, everyone. Welcome to 10 Partial Points Podcast. This is Rabbi Israel Isaacs, and we are starting today the book of Shmos, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Torah. And before we get into the Parsha of Shmos, I'd like to just talk about this book as a whole for a moment. And first of all, we call it the book of Shmos, which is literally the book of names, which is derived from the first verse of the book. These are the names of the children of Yaakov that came down to Egypt. But there are other names of this book. Nachmanides calls it, Ramban calls it, Sefer HaGeula, the book of redemption, because of the Exodus. And the Bahag, the Baal Halachos Gedolos, the author of the book called Halachos Gedolos, which means the Great Laws, who was an 8th century Babylonian rabbi named Shimon Kayara. And he refers to the five books with different names. He calls the first book Sefer Bracious, as we would. He refers to the book of Shmos as Chumashani, the second of the five books. The third book is Sefer Kohanim. In this, in his terminology, the book of the of the Kohanim, the book of the priests. Chumash Hapikudim is what we call Bamidbar, which he calls the Chumash of the countings because the Jewish people are counted twice in that book. And then finally, the fifth book is called Mishnah Torah, the repetition of the Torah or the second Torah because Devarim is essentially a repetition of other things that have already been discussed in the Torah with some additions, of course. And the truth is the Gemara also refers to the book of Shmos as the second book. It's a surprising name. We understand some of the other names that the Bahag calls the other four Chumashim, which relate to either important things that happened in those books or that describe the nature of the book as a whole. But why call the book of Shmos Chumashini? the second book. After all, there are some very important things that happened in this book, which it would seem to make sense to mention, like the title Exodus, which talks about the Jews' freedom from slavery, or you could talk about the giving of the Torah. It was puzzling why he uses this term, the second Chumash, when he has a specific name for all the other books. Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, known by the acronym the Nitziv, who lived in the 19th century and was, I believe, the longest-serving Rosh Yeshiva of the famous Velazhin Yeshiva. The Nitziv was renowned for his breadth of knowledge. He would study topics and books of the Torah that no one else paid attention to, and he, he actually wrote commentaries on many of these obscure books. He says that the second book, meaning the title that the Bahag refers to Shemos with, is actually very fitting, because what it means is that it's the second in a two-part series. It's connected to the previous book of Beratius. That's the book of creation, and the book of Shemos is second, it follows in sequence from that, based on what Rashi says in the beginning of Beratius, that the purpose that God created the world for Torah. And what that means is that he created the universe as a place for an intelligent being with free will to have a stage on which to reject evil and choose virtue. That depends on revelation, the giving of the Torah. And it also depends on, according to the way he set up this plan, it depends on the Jewish people because he provided in this system, the Jewish people will be a nation that he has a special relationship with and will be a model for other nations in Or Lagoyim, a light unto nations. So until 
the Torah was given, until that divine revelation, and until there was a people that would follow the divine law, the purpose of creation was not yet fulfilled and realized. So really, the book of Shemos is a continuation and part and parcel of the message and meaning of the first book of the Torah. That's why, suggests the Nitziv, the Bahag gave this title of the second book to Shemos, because it does indicate its value, importance, and nature. There are three main topics discussed in the book of Shemos. The first four of the 11 partios in this book discuss Egypt, slavery, and the process of redemption. The next two partios, number five and six, discuss the giving of the Torah and its laws. The last five partios discuss the tabernacle, the Mishkan, how to build it, how it was actually built, and those five partios have in the middle of them, they're interrupted by a very significant episode of the sin of the golden calf, the Chet HaEgel. That's an overview of this book. The three main topics are Egypt, giving of the Torah, and the tabernacle, the Mishkan. The Parsha starts off after enumerating the names of Yaakov's children. It says that Yosef died, and all of his brothers died, and that entire generation died, and the children of Israel were fruitful, teamed, increased, and became strong. Very, very much so. And the land became filled with them. I saw an interesting point made by Rabbi Vigdor Miller. He said that sometimes when we see an abundance of Jews in one place, for example, when many Jews live together in one neighborhood, it evokes a negative reaction for many people. Certainly, we see that with non-Jews sometimes, but even Jews might feel threatened for some reason by a large concentration of Jews. I don't want to oversimplify a certainly complex issue, because when you have an influx of any community that kind of takes over an area, it introduces a lot of challenges and complications that didn't exist before. But in general, when we see a strong Jewish community, we should have positive feelings of appreciation for that community being there. The Torah then famously describes that a new king, a Melech Hadash, arose in Egypt that did not know Yosef, and he was threatened by this tremendous increase in the Jewish population. He tells them that they're more numerous and more powerful than we are. They're going to join forces with our enemies if we're attacked, and they will leave us. Thus begins the enslavement of the Jewish people, and it starts as just a tax. The Jews are going to be responsible for building the store cities for Paro, Pisom, and Ramses. And the Torah says that to the extent that the Egyptians would afflict the Jews, they became more numerous and spread out. And this caused the Egyptians to be disgusted by the children of Israel. This is a very interesting point. Paro wanted to prevent an increase in population, so he gave them work. So presumably, he would define success by a reduction in the annual population growth. So if there were a thousand new Jews born in the prior year, he would say, okay, this year, if there's only 500 Jews born or only 300 Jews born, he would be happy and he would feel that 
his enslavement was a successful method of limitation of their growth. What actually happened was, and this was a supernatural miracle, he didn't just fail, which would have meant that the population growth would remain the same or would slowly increase. If it was a thousand last year, it was still a thousand this year. In spite of the slavery, that didn't happen. What happened is that they experienced exponential growth in spite of the enslavement. So if it was a thousand last year, it was two thousand this year, it was three thousand this year. Rashi says that it was common for a woman to give birth to six babies at once. And the more they doubled down on their oppression of the Jews, the more their population continued to increase. Rashi says, to the extent that they would attempt to afflict in that measure, God paid them back by making an effort to increase and spread out the Jewish people further. The next stage is that the Egyptians afflicted the children of Israel with avodas perech, crushing harshness. They embittered their lives with hard work, mortar, with bricks, every labor of the field. All the labors that they performed with them were with crushing harshness. So this is perhaps a second stage of the enslavement or the oppression more broadly. And then the third stage is Paro instructs the midwives to start killing covertly male babies that are born. His astrologers predicted that the savior of the Jewish people would be a male, apparently a baby, a newborn baby. So their job was to kill them so they wouldn't be able to grow up and save the Jewish people. When that didn't work, they gave their excuse to Paro. Their names were Shifra and Pua. It was Moshe's mother and sister, Yocheven and Miriam. It says that their reward was that God made them houses. We'll come back to that in a moment. When Paro saw that this method wasn't working, he switched to an overt method of killing the babies, and he just made a decree that any male baby that's born has to be thrown into the Nile River, which constitutes a further stage of the oppression, a fourth stage. The next thing the Torah talks about is the birth of Moshe. And the backstory for this Parsha, which is provided by Rashi and the Midrashim and the Gemara, is that Amram, who had become Moshe's father, was the leader of the generation. He was Levi's grandson, Yaakov's son, Levi's grandson. And when Amram saw that Paro decreed that all male newborns would be killed, he divorced his wife, Yocheved, because he said, why should they have children if they're going to be murdered by the Egyptians? They had two children at the time, Miriam and Aharon. And Miriam had a prophecy that she shared with her parents. How do we know that she was a prophetess? Because the Torah calls her Miriam Hanavia, Miriam the prophetess, when she leads the Song of the Sea of the women in Parshish Beshalach. This is Shmos 15... 20. That verse says, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister. And the question is, why is she only referred to as Aaron's sister? She's Moshe's sister too. Rashi says there, the Torah calls her the prophetess, brother of Aaron, because she was already a prophetess before Moshe was born. And he was her prophecy. She told her parents that her mother is going to give birth to a child that's going to save the Jewish people. This was in direct contradiction, of course, to Amram's approach to the situation. 
and it was Miriam that changed his mind that he should remarry her mother, Yocheved, and that they should continue to have children. And that's what happened. It says a man of the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was good, she hid him for three months. Rashi explains that when it says she saw that he was good, that there was a miraculous light that appeared at his birth. And the Gemara fills in more details here about the saga of the approaches of Amram and Miriam, because at this point he said to her that she's now vindicated. Her prophecy was correct because they saw that this baby was special. If there was this miraculous light with his birth, he must really be the person who's going to save the Jewish people. Three months later, however, three months later, however, when they were unable to hide the baby and they had to put him in a basket in the Nile, Amram became very upset with Miriam. And he said, what happened to your prophecy? This baby's going to be lost now. As we, of course, know, Miriam was right. Rev. Salvechik has a very interesting take on this whole episode. He says that Shifra and Pua, the midwives that God rewarded by giving them houses, that refers to positions of leadership. Because they were ready to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the Jewish people and the continuity of the Jewish people, they earned the mantle of leadership. And it was taken away from Amram. And this is borne out in the story of Moshe's birth and him being placed in the Nile. Because if you pay attention to all of the verbs in these verses, they're all in the feminine form. It says, Vatahar ha'isha vateled bain. The woman conceived and gave birth to a boy. Vatera oso, and she saw him, that he was good. She hid him for three months. She was not able to hide him anymore. She took for him a reed basket. She smeared it with clay and pitch. She put the baby inside. She put it in the reeds in the river. His sister stood a distance away to know what would happen with him. And then once he's discovered by the daughter of Paro, of course, Miriam suggests she will provide a nursemaid for this baby and Moshe's safety is guaranteed. Rav Salvechik points out that all these feminine verbs indicate that Amram was totally removed from this whole process and this whole saga of the early life of Moshe was totally carried out by his mother and sister. We then hear of three events and then a fourth in the life of Moshe. First, he goes out to see the suffering of his brethren. He kills an Egyptian that was striking one of the Jews. He goes out the next day and he sees two Jews fighting. He gets involved and they challenge his involvement and they say, are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And they revealed Moshe's act to Paro, who then sought to kill Moshe. Moshe had to flee. He ends up in the land of Midian. He saves the daughters of Yisro from the other shepherds that were tormenting them, and he marries Sipora, Yisro's daughter, and has a child named Gershom. Moshe's story is briefly interrupted by the Torah telling us that the Jews cried out that God should save them from their oppression. He heard their prayer, he remembered his covenant with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and then the story of Moshe resumes where he's shepherding Yisro's sheep, and one of them 
It gets lost, he goes after it, and then he sees the burning bush. In these four episodes, which are the only thing we know about Moshe's personality, they all have to do with him helping either other people or the animal, the sheep, showing care and concern and actually doing something to solve the problems that he saw other people having. Since these are the only things the Torah tells us about Moshe's earlier life before he became a leader, they would seem to indicate that this quality of caring about other people and reaching out to help them and taking action to help them are the qualities that made him qualified to be the ultimate leader of the Jewish people. Before we continue with the story of Moshe, I want to point out something that's a curiosity. I don't know what to make of it, but I found it interesting. The Midrashim say that there were three people that found their match, their zivug, at a well. Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Moshe. Regarding Yitzchak, it says that Eliezer, Avraham's servant, who was seeking out a wife for Yitzchak, rested his camels outside the city at the Be'er Hamayim, at the well. Regarding Yaakov, it says, Vayar ve'er He looked and he saw a well in the field, and that's where he met Rachel. Regarding Moshe, it says, Vayeshev al Be'er. He sat at the well, and that's where Zipporah and her sister came and he helped them. And what's even more interesting is that Rachel, Yaakov's wife, and Zipporah, Moshe's wife, have a number of parallels between the two of them. So first of all, before they both got married, before each of them got married, they were both shepherding their father's sheep. They both married husbands that were compelled to escape from their country of origin and where they grew up. Both their names are derived from animals. Rachel is sheep, Sipor is a bird. Each of them gave birth to two sons, and both of their husbands shepherded their father-in-law's sheep after they were married. Again, I don't know what to make of these points, but I think they're interesting. After Moshe chases after the sheep, he sees the bush that's burning and not consumed. God calls out to him, Moshe, Moshe, and he tells him to remove his shoes because the land he's standing on is holy land. This is where the Jews would receive the Torah. He says, I am the God of your forefathers. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And Moshe hid his face because he was afraid of looking at God. And God tells him that he has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt, and he has heard their prayer. He knows their pain, and I'm going to come down to save them from that land and bring them to a good land that's flowing with milk and honey. He tells Moshe, so now go and I will send you to Paro and take my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I'd like to go back for a moment to the episode of the burning bush. And the Torah says that Moshe saw the bush that was burning in fire and it's not consumed and implies that there's another thing that he saw. This first thing is that it was on fire and it did not turn into ashes. He waited there, meaning just because he sees a burning bush, maybe it is going to turn into ashes if he waits there a little while. But apparently he waited and he saw that it was just not turning into ashes. It was indestructible. Rev Soloveitchik, based on a careful reading of the verse, points out that evidently Moshe was amazed by a second unusual aspect of this burning bush. And that was that the fire didn't spread. He says, I'm going to go see this great sight. Why is the bush not burning? When he says this, he doesn't ask, why is the bush not consumed? The Torah already mentioned that before. There seems to be a part of the bush that's not burning at all. 
There's a part that's burning. That's not being consumed. That's indestructible. There's a part of the bush that's not even burning. Rev Salvatric assumes that the center of the bush is burning, but the fringe, the outside of the bush, was not burning. The fire did not spread to all parts of the bush. And this was what Moshe expressed amazement about. This second anomaly, this second miracle, appears to be something that is more impressive to him, that he calls it a Mare Hagadol, a great sight. And he says that Moshe derived two messages from these two different aspects. The first message shows that the covenantal community, the Jewish people, is indestructible. No matter what is done to it, no matter how much abuse it takes, it will live on. And the second miracle, that the outer parts of the bush didn't even catch fire at all, taught him a second point, that no matter what the external appearance of a Jew may look like, no matter how cold it may appear to be, no matter how far his deeds, his behavior, his culture may look from the Torah, from Judaism, and from godliness, it's not indicative of his inner nature. In Rosalvatric's words, regardless of the outside calm, in spite of the cold demeanor and uninspired exterior of the average Jew, deep down in his heart there is warmth, sensitivity, and love. And the practical ramification of this is that a Jew should never be expelled from the Jewish community. We should never separate ourselves from other Jews, even though they don't seem to align with us externally, because internally they do. And he goes on to speak about a tendency that the Orthodox community has, that they're ready to expel anyone from their midst and have nothing to do with those that are non-observant. I'll share with you another beautiful quote in which he mentions his grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Solveitchik. This is now our tendency towards isolation in our orthodoxy. I have never seen it before. I have lived in many countries with many people. It didn't exist. Reb Chaim never excluded a single Jew. A single Jew. And by not excluding, by not expelling, by not excommunicating, by not speaking ill when somebody passes by, he converted thousands of Jews, meaning he won over thousands of Jews to be closer to their roots. And this was a message for Moshe, that no matter how coarse and unrefined and dejected many of the Jewish people may have been at that time, the inside was still warm. Their inner personalities still had the potential that made them worthy. This is from the book, The Rav Thinking Aloud on the Parsha, Sefer Shemos, page 15. The Parsha continues with Moshe rejecting five times, at least according to what the Torah itself says. Clearly, he rejects God's command to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. He says, who am I that the Jewish people listen to me? What if they ask me what your name is? What do I tell them? He says, what if they don't believe me that you really spoke to me? I'm not a person of words. And then he says, send someone else to do this job and the implication is that his brother Aaron is older and more worthy of the job. And finally, God convinces him, and he doesn't go straight to Egypt. You would think, if God tells you you have to leave, you go right away. You take your family, and you go, aside from his objections. But once he's convinced that he is not going to get out of this, he should go. He doesn't do that. He stops at his father-in-law Yisro's house and asks his permission before leaving. And this perhaps shows... Moshe's debt of gratitude that he had to his father-in-law, that he took him in at a time of need, and his loyalty to him was such that even though he had an explicit divine command to go back to Egypt, 
and do a very important job, it was wrong to go without asking permission from his father-in-law. Moshe goes on the way, God speaks to him again, and he tells him what to do when he visits Paro, and that he'll strengthen Paro's heart, and he'll say no. And he says, tell Paro that I said my firstborn son is Israel. On the way back, there's a cryptic reference in the Torah to God wanting to kill Moshe. Sipora saves him, and they continue, and Moshe meets up with Aaron. He tells Aaron the plan. They gather the elders of the Jewish people, and they he demonstrates the signs. The people believe that Moshe was sent to redeem them. They're very grateful. They bow down their heads and lay down on the ground in gratitude to God for sending their Redeemer. Moshe and Aaron go to Paro. They express their message. Let us go celebrate in the desert to worship God. Paro says, who is Hashem that I should listen to his voice to send the Jewish people out? I don't know who he is. I'm not sending you. He increases the work on the Jews and their situation worsens. Moshe goes back to the Almighty and tells him about the problem, that the Jewish people are in a worse situation, and that he did not save them. And he responds, that you will see what I will do to Paro. I'm going to send, he's going to send them out with a strong hand, and there's nothing to worry about. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful, wonderful Shabbos.